0: Don't forget, you're going to die.
1: Welcome to the We Croak Podcast. I'm your host, Hansa Bergwall. and today we have Alan Lightman as a guest. He's the international best-selling author who wrote Einstein's Dreams, and we're going to be talking to him about his new title, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. And... This book actually came to my attention because one of the WeCroak people emailed me to say this is an amazing book, read it, there's lots of quotes in here for, for the app, and I'm always looking for people with a fresh perspective on death and impermanence, so I read the book, I was bowled over, I wanted to talk to him, and amazingly enough, he said yes to this podcast interview. And... What can I say about this discussion? Alan Lightman is like basically a modern day Thoreau, you know, if Thoreau were a theoretical physicist. Uh, We talk about the beauty of this island in Maine he goes to every summer and his deep meditations on the nature of this universe with all the, the math and scientific theory behind it. We d- discuss the calculations that he's gone through of uh, when scientists predict that all of the stars we can see in the sky will go dark and the universe will be plunged into eternal darkness, or at least that's what they theorize, as well as, you know, how we, how we live in this crazy universe where uh, sometimes what's true scientifically just boggles the mind. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Without further ado, here's Alan Lightman. All right. Thank you, Alan Lightman, for being here with us today. Thank you, Hansa. So I absolutely loved your book, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. And, you know, it's this beautiful combination of deep theoretical physics and, you know, meditation on absolutes. You know, Buddhist thought, Christian thought, Muslim thought, Hindu thought, all the different, you know, deeper ideas about meaning. And yet it's also framed by Lute Island which is a place that you go to retreat in the summers. Can you just tell us a little bit about Lute Island, what it is, what it means to you?
2: My wife is a painter and I'm a writer and I so teach, but I have the summer summers off like most teachers. And so many years ago, maybe 30 years ago, my wife and I thought that we would like to have a summer retreat where we could go and she would paint and I would write and, uh, we found out that this island was available, or there was there was a lot available on the island. It actually, there's six families that live on it, but uh, there was one or two lots available at this time. This was uh, around the late 1980s. We have been going there every summer since then, and uh, there are no roads or bridges or ferry service to the island, so every Body has their own boat, and uh, we spend the entire summer there. Um, I I don't go anywhere else during that period of time, th- three months, and it has become our our spiritual center. It's a place where we unplug from the grid, and uh, we're quiet. We have solitude. We can let our minds wander and think about whatever our minds want to think about uh, I do some of my best thinking and writing there and uh, we feel very privileged to be there because not everybody can live on an island in the summer for for many reasons so we feel extremely lucky to be there
1: yeah of course it makes me think of Thoreau who's quoted in your book and having this contemplative retreat in nature How do you think being away off the grid in nature has shaped you as a physicist, writer, thinker?
2: I'm I'm not so sure how it's shaped me as a physicist, although there are some great physicists who did their best work when they were alone, especially theoretical physicists. An experimental physicist needs to be with his or her equipment and their team of colleagues. But certainly as a thinker and as a writer It has had tremendous effect on me being able to withdraw for several months in a row especially in the modern world where there's so much noise all the time uh, there's there's an addiction to the internet so that we have to be plugged in 24 7 we've become addicted to constant external stimulation most people can't sit alone in a room by themselves for 10 minutes or more without external stimulation, uh, which is a terrible habit that we've gotten ourselves into. So when, when your mind has quiet and uh, freedom and, and time and space, you begin thinking about things that you wouldn't ordinarily think about. And you can turn over ideas in your mind, you can think about what's important to you, your values, where you want to go with your life, uh, which I consider all part of consolidating your self-identity. You're more creative. Gustav Mahler, the composer, used to take three hour walks in the countryside after lunch for good ideas. Gertrude Stein, the writer, when she was working on a, a book or an article, she would take a drive in the countryside and just walk around with the cows uh, Einstein talks about the way the unconscious mind is so important. All of us really need to have that quiet time, but it's so hard to find in the modern world.
1: How, how do you do it in the, the rest of the year when you're not on Lute Island?
2: Good question. Well, I try to make some time in every day where I'm not looking at my to-do list. I'm not following a schedule uh, I'm, 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 I might take a walk, or I might sit quietly and read, or I might sit quietly and do nothing at all. And dinner time, my wife and I always uh, turn off the phones. So there, there are some things that you can do during an ordinary day. I, I think that everybody can find twenty or thirty minutes a day to unplug. Yeah, that's
1: that's great advice, especially for those of us who don't aren't lucky enough to have a loot Island. Yes. So this book. I, it opens up and your second chapter is called longing for absolutes in a relative world which opens up a lot of the themes of this book about being a materialist and a scientist and also having this um, relationship to the absolutes the spiritual teachings of the world as a human being and longing as a word really struck me because when I did this meditation course my teacher opened with this idea of we're here because we have this longing right like that's why we're in this room wanting to learn this and i'd love to hear about longing from you what's what's your relationship to it you know as a as a scientist why is that the first word of your second chapter of this book
2: well it's it's a word that comes from me not as a scientist but as a human being and and we're human beings first and we're scientists and artists and thinkers second and we have various human desires we have very primitive desires like desire for food and desire for sex but we also have philosophical and existential desires which can sometimes be as strong as as those more primitive and physical desires and one of the things that we long for is permanence and I think that that our own mortality is the source of that longing I think an awareness of our own mortality the fact that we're all that we're going to die is really the impulse that leads to many of our beliefs and desires and longings our, our religious beliefs our belief in, a, in an eternal soul uh, perhaps our belief in God all of that is motivated in some way or another by the knowledge of our own mortality. Everything that we see around us in nature is, is, is impermanent. That's one of the things that, that modern science has taught us. We, thought, we once thought that the atom was, was indivisible and indestructible and we in the late 1900s, I'm sorry, the late uh, 1800s and onward we, we were able to divide and split the atom so it's no longer indestructible. We once thought that stars were immortal, made out of of divine stuff, not even earthly stuff, and we have found in the 20th century that stars are made out of material like dirt and they eventually will exhaust their nuclear fuel and burn out. Of course we know that our own bodies are made out of material and, and pass away so everything that we see around us passes away and we just cannot accept that from a philosophical and spiritual point of view We, we, we want there to be something that does not pass away and maybe that's to give meaning to existence maybe it's to give meaning to the universe but we we want there to be something that lasts and I think that is one of our deepest longings it's not something that necessarily bothers us every day like the the need to eat the next meal but but it's 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 deep in us
1: yeah I have to say that one of the things that struck me in this book that as a theoretical physicist your understanding of impermanence just as cosmic on its scale you have this line in there that in a thousand billion years uh, and I guess You've seen the calculations for why that number over a different one. Mm-hmm. All the stars in the sky, which are uncountable, will have gone dark. Yeah, and the night sky will be dark, and so will the day sky, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: all will be dark. And I just yes. was wondering how how do you even grapple with, you know, uh, impermanence on that scale?
2: Well, it raises questions about what created the universe, and is there a purpose? In the universe. The fact that we as <clears throat> scientists believe that, that all of the stars will burn out, in fact, we can calculate uh, how long that will take. I think that every person from, from the time that they're a child, when they, they look up at the sky and are just mesmerized by the splendor and grandeur of, this, of the night sky, it raises questions does it go on forever? Will it last forever? It, it it brings up cosmic questions when you look at the night sky and to think that at some point in the future there won't be any stars up there or there won't be any stars that we can see and that it will just be total dark and of course our Sun will be gone. Our Sun will be gone in about five billion years or so Uh, When I say gone, I mean it will have burned up all of its fuel and will be dark. That's a pretty mind-boggling thought. And it does raise these existential philosophical questions.
1: Right, because as scientists have observed, you know, stars supernova or go out, correct? But they've never seen a new one be created. Is that
2: we have seen right. we we have seen new stars. We have, yeah. It, it doesn't happen quickly. No, but we we have seen stars in various phases of creation, um, and it, I mean it takes hundreds of thousands of years for for a single star to be created. But if you see snapshots of different stars at different phases of being created, it would just it would be the same as seeing snapshots of a human being at different ages. That you can sort of piece them together and see the entire process. So we, we do have very strong evidence that, stars, that new stars are created. We know how that process occurs. But as the universe continues expanding and getting less and less dense, thinning out, the rate of creation of stars slows down and uh there will be a point in the future in which there's not a high enough density of gas in space to create new stars so that as stars are are burning out one by one uh which is happening now and has happened in the past that there will be no star new new stars to replace them
1: wow i think we really want to think of that like life recreates itself over and over again that these stars would do the same thing and yet that is not that doesn't the seem to be the case physical properties that seem to be yeah. governing them
2: no that's not in the cards we we know that our universe is expanding and that it's getting thinner and thinner and the, the density of material is getting lower and lower and lower we, we we know that from our observations the universe as a whole is 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 on a one-way trip to extinction wow so one of
1: the things about this book is it just takes this rigor to understanding some of the most miraculous things you can observe from the stars to you have this line that you can actually speculate uh, or calculate a lot of the design specs of the hummingbird from basic physics and biology and that you've actually in classes sort of done these equations for how fast your heart would have to be in order mm-hmm. to flap your arms at a certain speed and I'm just wondering about how you think about that the curiosity it takes to sort of calculate the design specs of a hummingbird
2: Well, I think that every professional scientist starting since childhood wanted to understand how things work and that's what makes a little boy or a little girl become a scientist is you want to understand what is what is the logic what are the cause and effect relationships behind the the miracle of existence that we see around us. And it's really astounding that we have been able to, that that with the progress of science over the last few hundred years, that we have been able to reduce many uh, phenomena around us from amoeba to stars to hummingbirds. We've been able to reduce them to mechanical systems in which we can use the the facts and equations and knowledge of physics and chemistry and biology to to uh, unravel these systems and understand how they work. But uh, one of the things that I say in the book about that chapter on the hummingbird is is that even after you have undergone that reduction of reducing the flight of a hummingbird to so many flaps per second of its wings and so many beats per second of its heartbeat, you're still awed by the hummingbird itself. I mean, to see this, this beautiful little creature hovering in midair like a little dollop of paint in the air. It's, it's, it's just, uh, I don't want to ever lose that, that awe of the natural world. Um, even as I learn more and more as a scientist about how things work. I don't want to lose that, that magic and, and awe of the material world. I think
1: that some people worry that if they take the scientific rigor to something like a hummingbird or the stars, they'll lose that sense of wonder, that juicy, wonderful feeling that we all recognize when you know a hummingbird alights near us. And yet, it doesn't seem like it's done that for you. How, why do you think the wonder persists?
2: There's something about the whole that is not reducible. And I think it also is related to the irreducibility of human consciousness. That when I talk about my awe of the hummingbird, I'm really talking about not just the hummingbird but me I'm talking about the way that I relate to the hummingbird you know there's there's my mind and my eyes and and my ears that are observing the hummingbird and so there's a a, an interaction between me and the hummingbird and on my side of that interaction is my consciousness and consciousness uh, human consciousness is a is a is a mysterious thing. We 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 understand that that the brain uh, that uh, most of the information in the brain is stored in, in about a hundred billion neurons, which are the, the brain cells. And each of these neurons is connected to between a thousand and ten thousand other neurons. And we know a lot about how the electricity and the chemical chemicals flow between neurons. There's a lot that we don't know. But one of the things that we don't understand at all is how consciousness emerges from those hundred billion neurons, the sensation of consciousness. And if we don't understand that, then we're not going to be able to analyze the awe that we feel when we see a hummingbird or when we fall in love or any other profound emotional experiences that we have that are all related to our, our consciousness. And even though I'm, I'm a scientist and I am also a materialist, by which I mean, I do think that, that everything in, in the world, physical world is made of atoms and molecules and nothing more. I do have a very high regard uh, for the mystery of consciousness. And I hope that we never understand exactly what consciousness is. I hope that it remains somewhat mysterious because I think that that mystery is part of what drives our our art and our uh, spirituality and our emotions. There's a wonderful line by Albert Einstein, which is one of my favorite things that he said, which is, um, if I can remember it, um, The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It lies at the true cradle of art and science. Or he might have said science and art. But Mm. Einstein had a a deep respect for the the mysterious um, even though he did a lot to uncover the workings of nature and the material world. He still had a deep respect for the power of the mysterious.
1: I I really like that idea of our consciousness being like a hummingbird. We can break it down into a hundred billion neurons but it still doesn't account for what we feel when we really look at it squarely and its its totality is right in front of us. So we have consciousness and we also have death and you have a whole chapter on death in this book and it's it's where you, you quote Thoreau talking about wanting to live deliberately before you die. And um, how does a materialist look at death?
2: I think that death is, uh, the distinction between life and death is overrated. And I know that that sounds flip, but what I mean by that is that I as a materialist and thinking of the, of the of the brain uh, as a material object, I think of death as the gradual loss of consciousness rather than as nothingness you you can't really wrap your your, your mind around nothingness you you can't even say talk about nothingness, but you can talk about the gradual loss of consciousness and I can imagine that uh, a group of doctors could take apart my brain one neuron at a time. And uh, at some point I would lose uh, a sense of, of, uh, I would lose memories, or some memories. And another point I would lose a sense of where I am, and I would become disoriented And eventually everything that I associated with with myself, with a capital S, and my awareness and my ego would dissolve uh, into confusion. And we we actually have witnessed this with, with people who have advancing dementia and it's it's a grim subject and i've had relatives who have suffered from alzheimer's uh, i have a friend who is suffering from 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 uh, gradual progressive alzheimer's or whatever you call it and she writes to me every few months and i can see the gradual loss of of consciousness and as a materialist i see consciousness as rooted in the materiality of the neurons in our brains I I can see that it can be taken apart one neuron at a time in which we, we eventually lose consciousness and the total loss of consciousness is death but that's the way that I look at death as a materialist but I also consider myself to be a spiritual person and by that I mean, I think that, that I have uh, certain experiences where I feel a vital connection to something larger than myself. I feel part of something larger than myself. I feel that there's some unseen order in the world. And I, and I think that the totality of all of those experiences is, is what I call the spiritual universe. It may or may not involve God, but as a spiritual person, the the materialist description of, of, of death and the approach to death is not satisfying to me. And a way that I think about death that is satisfying, that that combines both my materialist and my spiritual dimensions, is the knowledge that a hundred years from now, or maybe or a thousand years from now, that every atom in my body will sti- still be here. Uh, my body will decompose into individual atoms, and those atoms will not know that they came from me. But they will have you could you could label each atom with it with a very tiny social security number and you could literally follow each atom of mine around for the next thousand years. This is not science fiction, it's not fantasy, this, you could actually do this. And some of those atoms would go uh, would dissolve in the ocean, some of them would, would go into the ground and become parts of, of plants and bushes and trees and some of those atoms will become parts of other people. A thousand years from now, there will be people walking around, some of whose atoms will have come from me, will be part of my body right now, will be part of this hand here, will be part of, of the memory of my mother, will be part of the memory of the, uh, the vinegary smell of my first apartment some of those atoms that are part of those memories right now in my brain will be in other people that they, they won't those people will not necessarily have memories of my mother or my hand or anything like that but some of the exact atoms will be there in those people and so that's kind of a way for me to last longer than this particular configuration of atoms that i call myself
1: it's such a poetic and yet literally true scientific meditation. <laughs> I really appreciate that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's an odd blend of, of the spiritual and the material.
1: So it sounds like as, as a scientist, you think about consciousness pretty differently than I'd say we commonly do in our society. You know, we think of that we have this thing called a life or this thing, you know, like a soul and what happens to it. And, you know, like a, a thing, like a stone, it you know, doesn't really exist for us because it can degrade over time. It's more like a happening, I think, is the other thing. Like a like a life, a consciousness is more like a, a
2: kiss than a stone, mm-hmm. would you say? A process or a, yeah, or, or, or an interaction or...
1: There's a moment when that happening is over and that's death. Is that kind of more accurate?
2: Well, you could... You're, I think you're saying that consci- we can think of consciousness as, as a sequence of events mm-hmm. rather than material. And, and yes, you, you can do that. Of course, those events are, are rooted in material. But, but yes, I mean you can look at, at life as, as a series of events rather than material thing.
0: Hey, this is your host, Hansa Bergwall, And here I am, Ian Thomas.
1: Uh, Ian, I don't know about you, but I think I'm ready to live immediately.
0: I have never been more ready to live immediately in
1: my entire life, Hansa. The easiest way to, to live immediately, besides, you know, living, is to head over to Weekroak.com, hit the Become a Patron button, and there you can get the Live Immediately uh, we Croak mug to remind you every morning as you have coffee. Because, you know, five times a day <laughs> on your phone might not be enough. I could not agree more.
0: It's never enough. And the mug is an amazing conversation starter as you're walking around the office. People might question your sanity. And as they hear more about we Croak and living immediately, then they'll probably start to question theirs as well. And that's exactly what we're
1: going for. That's a great way to come and support us. Also, you know, downloading the app if you haven't already. And just, you know, sending us a note, letting us know what you think, suggesting a guest. Basically, we're doing this out of passion right now, so we want to hear from you if you want us to
0: keep doing it. Help us push WeCroak into amazing and exciting new ways. Now we should get back to the conversation. Absolutely. Let's do it.
1: So, speculative question for you about the atoms with uh, social security numbers which you know you do take some license to have some speculative moments in this book which I really Mm -hmm. appreciate it Mm -hmm. so obviously we probably have to assume that you know the atoms can't remember anything Uh, but is there anything that like could they perhaps have some sort of signature based on where they've been and like how the electrons orbit or something like that like is that a possibility within current scientific framework that you know atoms do have some way of marking what they've been through in this universe?
2: Not, not very much. An atom consists of, of, a, of, a, of a center, we call the nucleus, which has neutrons and protons in it, and then it has electrons orbiting around, and the electrons can be in, in different orbits or different energy levels, and the number of neutrons in the nucleus of the atom can vary. So, for example, if you see some uranium that has, has disintegrated over time. You can say something about the history of, of the material that the uranium was in. But the, the memory that atoms have is, is very, very rudimentary and elementary. The number of neutrons in the nucleus, the energy levels of the electrons, but you, you can't really encode very much information there. You couldn't encode nearly the amount of information that you have in a complete memory of something. For that, you need billions and billions of atoms. So a single atom cannot really encode anything close to what we would call a a human memory. So there's really not much information encoded in an individual atom about where it has been if you heat it up the atom uh, or some electricity through it and you knocked off a few electrons, you might say that well, it went through some very energetic shock or something like that. But that's about the most that you could say about the past life of that atom. We're we're pretty sure that to have memory or intelligence or consciousness that you need billions of neurons and and each neuron is made out of trillions of atoms. So you really need a, a huge number of atoms before you have anything resembling what we would call memory or consciousness.
1: Right. So it sounds like it's more about that longing we have as human beings, even though it's a literally true thought experiment, than the possibilities yes. of science.
2: Yes. But it is sort of a neat thought, that all of the atoms in your body will still be here on earth a thousand years from now and that, that some of them will be parts of other people I mean that's that's a pretty cool thought for me
1: yeah <laughs> me too <laughs> I like it I, I, I was struck by it in the book you know a lot of things you've dedicated your life to a kind of scientific rigor mm-hmm. you know, looking for truth and yeah, there's this one place in the book where you say that you know you know that you will die one day, and really, that's the only thing that you're certain of. And you also talk about, you know, the ways in which these absolutes that you can't really test always end up coming into even science, like you bring up the multiverse, which uh, is it really science if if it can never be tested, which is what most people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk about certainty a little
2: bit? Well, we haven't really defined yet what, what we mean by absolutes. And, and I like to start with that, that when I use the word absolute, I mean permanence, unity, indivisibility, those kinds of, of, of qualities. Certainty is one of them, and uh, science does not have any absolute certainty. Um, everything that we know in science is, is tentative and provisional. Uh, our, our theories, uh, our theory of electricity and magnetism, our theory of gravity, these are all approximations, uh, e- even though they've been very successful at, at, at all of the, the science and technology that we have today. They're approximations to even deeper Theories, And so the, the, the history of science has been one of, of, of getting better and better approximations to the behavior of, of nature. So you can't really say that any knowledge in science is, is certain. So the question is, where would you find certain knowledge if such a thing exists? I think that, that theologians, many theologians uh, in various faiths uh, believe that you can find certain certainty in religion and in particular for example in the sacred books and there are uh, in, in, in Islam and Christianity for example there there is the belief that the sacred books express the the, the, the true word of, of God um, and Buddhists feel that that the Buddha um, had absolute knowledge. Uh, One of the words for the Buddha is the Lakhavidu, the knower of worlds. And so in the view of of these religious traditions there is certain knowledge because it is believed that that, that these writings and teachings come from from God and and God has absolute knowledge. So this is a, a strong contrast with the kind of knowledge that we have in science uh, which is uh, always considered provisional uh, until it's revised. There's no revision in religious knowledge; it's 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 absolute.
1: Wow, well, you have this passage that I want to read, which I think is you know just it's a good idea of the sort of tone of the book um, and also how you know uh, these big questions of truth of, of death and permanence are also informing life and you write as I lie in my hammock now on this late afternoon in August I can feel the seconds ticking away to my end and I believe it to be a final end. but that finality does not diminish the grandeur of life as the seconds tick by I breathe one breath at a time I inhale I exhale these spruces and cedars I cherish and know, the wind, the sweet scent of moist and dark soil. These are my small sense of enlightenment, my past life and present life and future life, all in one moment. And what strikes me about a lot of this book is you have sort of the intellectual courage to look at the universe, the atoms, you know, how scarily and permanent they are on all levels and yet you're a really happy guy, at least you seem so, and this passage seems to say that, that having that courage has a good quality to your well-being and consciousness and I was just wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about how, that, how thinking about these deep and sometimes frightening things makes you feel living in the world.
2: I think that being alive is a gift and you know, you just think that, that every, just look, we can talk about human life. Every, every woman has tens of thousands of eggs inside of, of her. And, and every man has tens of thousands of, of sperm in him. So there are just billions and billions and trillions of potential lives there. And, and yet each man and woman produces only a few. So so your your being here at all, your your being alive, is a very rare and special thing out of those billions of eggs and billions of sperm. We know that, that the vast majority of material in the universe is inanimate. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of material in the world is an animate form, in living form. Um, I think one time I did the calculation and it's like one grain of sand on the Saharan beach. If, the, if, 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 if a, the Saharan desert was all of the material in the universe, then one grain of sand would be in living form. That's sort of the, the fraction and when you look at it in those terms being alive and having that special assemblage of atoms that confers life and consciousness is a, is a very rare thing and uh, it's a gift uh, that's the way that I view it and uh, I think that so many of us live Uh, robotic lives, that we're just checking up items on on our to-do list, we're just going from A to B to C each day, and we don't stop and think about how precious it is to just be alive. Uh, One of the, um, I know that you're into Buddhism, and one of the the, uh, the features of Buddhism that I love is is mindfulness which is just paying attention each moment of the day each moment that you're awake uh, to what's around you and uh, I think that when we don't of course you can't pay attention every moment of the day Um, you have to do some things mechanically but I think that we could pay attention much more than what we do and there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world there's a lot of injustice but there's also a lot of beauty and uh, there are other beautiful human beings and I think that that we we all need to to pay attention much more to just the preciousness of 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 each moment and of, of being alive
1: Wow, that's that's a beautiful answer and you know, one of the things about this book that is so striking is the going back and forth between the island in Maine, the theoretical physics and the, the departments of science and then also you talk about going to meditation retreats and being in dialogue with other spiritual teachers so there's this sort of expansive curiosity and all these things talk to each other in one way or another and uh, yeah it feels like an important recipe in a way of being curious and not cutting out half of what is to focus on the other half Mm -hmm. letting it all in and being aware. Toward the end of the book we you talk about humans which sort of where we began we have this this longing and we are in flux just like everything else Uh, and you have this passage uh, that brings up introduces a major theme that you talk about as JBS Haldane one of the first prophets of so-called transhumanism said nearly a century ago science is as yet in its infancy and we can foretell little of the future save that the thing that has not been in the thing that shall be that no belief, no values, no institutions are safe. And then you say everything will be changed and kind of meaning you talk for a while about including us and you introduce this idea of uh, homo sapiens are becoming homo techno that we are entering this phase of really rapid evolution and change and that you weren't sure what, if there's anything essential about being human that we need to preserve. And I was struck by that, like, cause you know, we spend so much of the book down at the level of the atom and then, you know, the cosmos. And then here we come back to this question of, of us and how we're changing and changing fast. And, um, well, first, let me just ask, how do you, how do you think about, about that?
2: well, it's inevitable and anyone who's more than 30 years old has seen vast change just during the last 30 years of daily life as impacted by technology and especially communication technology and the internet which has just transformed our existence. I think that Change is inevitable, and we we all know people who, who resist change, who just keep talking about the past and can't give up that friend who ditched them five years ago or ten years ago. Uh, we get stuck in the past. Uh, I think it's hard to accept change. I think there are organizations uh, that undergo businesses that undergo change and sometimes they have to have a, a special workshop on, on making the transition because it's difficult psychologically to make change. But one of the hardest things to get used to is the fact that, that we as a species are changing. And uh, when I when I use the word homo techno, I mean not only are we developing technology at a very rapid pace, but we are in the process of creating organisms that are part human and part machine. And it's just going to be a matter of time. I mean, we already do that to some extent. We we wear eyeglasses that allow us to improve our vision and we have hearing aids, but we're going to go far, far beyond that it's just a matter of time before we have computer chips in our brains that will allow us to connect directly to the internet just by thought and we will be able to exchange thoughts with other people through the internet. The, 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 the idea of intellectual idea of intellectual property will take on a whole new meaning when our thoughts can be instantly transmitted to the Internet. Uh, we will be able to create memories of things that never happened. We already have the psychoactive drugs now, uh, but we will go far beyond that um, once we understand more about how memories are stored in the brain. So we, we're going to be literally part human and part machine. And you know, one of the questions I'll raise in the book, and I don't really have the answer to, is is whether there's anything about us now that we associate as being essentially human that will remain 500 years ago in these new creatures that are part human and part machine. It's possible that a, that a sense of humor, but we know that lower animals have, have a sense of humor as well. Crows play with each other I would venture to say that there's nothing unique about homo sapiens that will be preserved uh, I think most of our emotions we can see in, in lower animals our, our, our emotions will be totally controllable and and synthesized synthesizable and we can do that now with with certain drugs you can change the personality of a person so we are really transforming ourselves and is that a good thing or a bad thing I don't know it's inevitable we're not going to be able to stop it but I hope that we can try to do it thoughtfully and intelligently and think about the implications of each new Biological and technological advance.
1: Yeah, we use the word evolution, but this is a unique evolution in the sense that we're playing an active role in designing it. And so, you know, Thoreau is a really big presence in this book, and I associate him with the word deliberately. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, do you have any ideas about how, as we, you know, evolve and use technology and change, we do so with more like rigorous deliberation.
2: Well, capitalism kind of squashes everything. <laughs> okay. And capitalism squashes deliberation, it squ- squashes thought, it squashes ethics and morality. So, if there's money to be made by these new technological advances, there will be people who are pushing it for that reason alone and are going to be hard to rein in. But I do, we, we do have some administrative structures now where there are uh, people whose job it is to look at the ethical ramifications of developments in science technology. There, there are people who's, who's, for whom that's their profession uh, there are professional groups that do this, and I think that we will need more and more of that. I'm not sure that it will have a, that those groups will have legal authority. Uh, and I do think that the 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 capitalism will eventually trump every such consideration. But I do think that that is our best hope of trying to move deliberately into the 22nd century and the 25th century and the 30th century of having some people that recognize that there are profound philosophical, spiritual, ethical implications of these scientific and technological advances and will make recommendations. And we have seen attempts of this, like the the Union of Concerned Scientists that advocates against stopping nuclear war and nuclear disarmament. And, and so we, we, there, there's some of us who recognize that, that there's a need here to be deliberate about the advance of our technological society. And Henry David Thoreau's time, the new technology was the railroad. And there's a wonderful line in Walden where he says, we don't ride the railroad. The ra- railroad rides us. And so I would I would say that we're dangerously close to being ridden by the Internet today and what's going to come after the Internet, where where biology and technology are going to be fused together. So we, we, we need to be careful.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well... It sounds like our current social order gives us plenty of challenges as we go into this technological age of speeding up, but that, uh, you know, we do have some agency to deliberate still and to choose. And, you know, it's hard, but just get into it, do it, (laughs) make conscious choices. Wow. That's so fascinating. Do you have any final words for us today? Uh, things I should have asked you or
2: well you 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 asked a lot of wonderful questions Hansa and you're a, a wonderful thinker yourself so I I um I enjoyed the conversation and uh of course it's it's for any writer it's it's a it's a privilege and a compliment for someone else to to read their book carefully and and you read this book carefully so I thank you for that
1: well, thank you so much. It was really a huge pleasure to have you. Yep. I'll, thank, uh... <laughs> thank, thank you. So. Before you head out to count
0: the uncountable stars in our sky, we'd love to hear from you. Please shoot us an email, contact us through the app, or leave us a review on iTunes. This podcast is for you. We want to know what you think. Thank you.